Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Summary. Hey guys, this week we're talking about the pharma giant Novartis, because my guest is Bertrand Bodson, and he's been the Chief Digital Officer of Novartis since 2018, and he's a member of their executive committee. And Bertrand's been tasked with going big on data and digital for the organization, and he explains all of that in the podcast. So Bertrand's got a really cool background. So from 2013 to 2017, he was Chief Digital and Marketing Officer of Sainsbury's Argos, where he basically led Argos's successful transformation from what was a catalog business. Do you remember those catalogs used to get delivered through your door? Those massive like doorstop catalogs. Anyway, converted it from that into the third largest online retailer in the UK. So he knows a thing or two about digitizing a big organization. So before that, he was executive vice president of the global digital business at EMI Music, another guest from the music industry, and that was from 2010-2013. He was an entrepreneur as well, so he co-founded Bragster.com, which was a social network and content sharing website, and he was CEO there from 2006-2010, and he was a senior group manager at Amazon from 2003 to 2006 and he's got some really cool stories about the early days of Amazon too. So he's got all sorts of qualifications, MBA from Harvard and all the rest of it. I'll let Bertrand explain that and everything about Novartis and going digital. Enjoy this week's episode everybody. Bertrand, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning? Good, thanks James. Happy New Year. Happy New Year indeed. Happy New Year. Yeah, we're speaking to you in that very first week, aren't we, after the Christmas break. Did you get up to anything nice, anything exciting? Uh, good quality time with the family and um, I still have the chance to have three grandparents as well approaching the century. So it was oh, great. wow. That's amazing. Time with them as well. Oh, lovely, lovely. It's an amazing time to reflect, I found. I, I actually went away to Mauritius for a couple of weeks um, and managed to get away, but I ended up doing more work, I think. I was just the, the amount that was spinning around my mind and ideas and thinking and stuff. It's amazing what a bit of time off can do for you. Yeah, you're right. Same here as well. Think about the <laughs> 20 objectives and what we want to do as well and then over the next, uh, over this year, but also thinking even around the decade as well has been, it's always good to have some fresh it's time. a good point. It's a good point. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Bertrand? I'm in Basel, in uh, sunny Basel in Switzerland. And I can literally see from my window here, Germany, France and Switzerland. Oh my God, that just sounds glorious. I can see nothing but grey sky and rain <laughs> in in not so sunny, sorry, in the south of England. So <laughs> not as ideal as seeing like... You don't get to complain countries. about it. Well, true. No, good point. I was I was there. I was there. Anyway, we digress. So Bertrand, obviously we've had a quick call before, so I know a little bit about your awesome background, but for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us your story? Sure, happy, happy. Um, I'm Belgian, studied what we call commercial engineering in, uh, in Belgium for, uh, for five years, then worked at uh, BCG, which was a continuation of my education for uh, three years after that, uh, then did um, a business school at the HBS uh, for a couple of years, got sort of the entrepreneurial bug probably around that time. Um, after that, I joined fairly early on, uh, almost 15, 20 years ago now, uh, Amazon, while it was still pretty much a super fast moving startup, 
which was absolutely fascinating. Got a lot out of uh, uh, learnings that have stayed with me in my DNA since then from there in terms of customer centricity, in terms of a platform build and really building for scale from fairly early on. Uh, love the place. Uh, I got the bug, launched my own business between the US and the UK uh, called Bradster afterwards, which has been a, a social media um, uh, or, uh, that we sold to the Guinness World of Record. And over the last uh, 10 years, I've been driving digital transformation um, at first across the entertainment music business. Um, and at EMI, when we converted in three years, three, four years from 20% digital to 50% digital. If you remember when Spotify was not even known, but uh, backing those and, and, and trying to find actually the next wave of innovation in, in, in that space as such, absolutely fascinating. Uh, with all the implications it has on the teams, on the setup, uh, on how you drive the direction for that, on partnerships, you name it. Uh, and then went back to my first love of retail, I would say, fighting against Amazon in many ways, <laughs> uh, co-running or, or, or leading the uh, digital marketing and good part of the operations on the commercial side as well with uh, a business called Argos that you know well in the UK. To Sainsbury's, uh, so worked there for a while as well, but absolutely fascinating transformation as such. Um, uh, more than happy to comment about that. And a couple of years ago, I've joined uh, Novartis, which and the healthcare space more broadly, which has been an irresistible challenge uh, and absolutely fascinating over the last uh, couple of years in what needs to be done over there, with a bet to some extent on on the fact that you get a real convergence between technology, uh, customer centricity, data, and science coming up, and it's really really obvious uh, that it's coming there. So it's almost the next frontier from a digital transformation, and one of the most exciting ones. It's an awesome background. So there's so much that I want to ask you about. And the first thing I want to ask you about is your time at Amazon. And you said very quickly, just before or just after it, you said that you got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. And I'm just intrigued as to what Amazon was like at the time that you joined. What were you doing? What was the company like? And how did that kind of help spark your entrepreneur instincts i guess to then move on to your own business straight afterwards well it the fact that it was early means everything had to be created and and bezos always calls it to this day the fact that it's still day one within uh, within amazon so you have to keep reinventing yourself mm. we felt that way we were in a old hospital called PacMed in seattle that i think doesn't even uh belong to amazon now whereas there is 40 plus offices in seattle itself uh, it was a fairly small group of people uh, figuring it out on the back of the crisis in 2001 as well. Um, it was obvious that there was an incredible customer centricity uh, from day one. I still remember as well, even the days, it was just after my time, but where Bezos had set up a bell that was ringing every time that a new order was coming in. Oh, wow. So of course, this was uh, becoming unbearable to do <laughs> such. Um, so I came after that time. It was starting to professionalize itself and a mix of entrepreneur and probably skilled people uh, coming to really help bring that to the next level. Yeah. I got the chance to work on a variety of things, in, uh, uh, first in finance, then in business development, fairly quickly, partnership. We looked at China and country expansions as well that we could make. Um, then uh, moved to the product side. Uh, which was fascinating. And that's probably where the entrepreneurial bug truly came through as well, because they have to 
to invent new models to some extent. So I worked on things like uh, DVD rental, which is now uh, Amazon uh, Music, uh, yeah. as such, competing with Netflix. We had the chance as well to um, to acquire Netflix a couple of times, but missed out on that a few times. So we decided to go and 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 set up our own services part of it. It was still brick and mortars. First time that Amazon had product that had to be reshipped the other way around. So it yeah. the, the process, the experience as such, but it was clearly with an eye on digital content uh, that was coming and is in full flux right now. Uh, even it gives you a set of the mindset of Bezos and team at the time is when we set that up, it was a subscription business for the first time within Amazon. So it was the underlying platform for uh, Prime, uh, which uh, was also a subscription business on the back of it. So. Uh, which seemed like crazy at the time because you had to be ready to invest in areas where potentially you would ship, I don't know, some toothpaste or toothbrush or simple items or a book for almost free delivery on the back of it to customers. But if you viewed that as the most loyal, sticky customer proposition you could offer. So yeah. always a view on investing on that front. So there was a, a lesson for me that I took away all along of uh, the absolute customer obsession, starting from the customer, starting from what their journey would be, uh, even forcing yourself to write those press releases fairly early on in the shoes of a customer, uh, which was hard work, mm -hmm. but really gives you the North Star. And at the same time, platform build 10 years ahead. So how do you build platforms? Well, you know the world will keep moving, but that can allow you to really scale at an incredible pace as well afterwards mm -hmm. when, when times come. So far away from the the bell that was ringing in the early days. <laughs> it's amazing how many times you said the word customer in that answer. And it's still the rhetoric that Bezos says today. I mean, he still says, you know, the whole thing's based on customer centricity, doesn't he? He's obsessed with it. And actually quite a lot of good businesses are. The amount of podcasts that I've recorded with people that have talked about that customer centricity, especially now that a lot of those people like yourself with different backgrounds are now moving into healthcare. I think it's such a good principle to be moving into healthcare with because traditionally I don't think things have really been built around patients because patients have never really had choice over what comes to them and so there's no point in pressing them because actually people that buy things you know are far removed from the patients and so I think that customer centricity principle is so 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 good but it's interesting to me as well how you've you've then you've joined Amazon you've learned all these different skills as you say finance biz dev sales you know all these different things and then that seems to have equipped you with the tools to then launch your own business, which I think you said was in social media and then sold to the Guinness World Records, which is like a, a that seems like a crazy plethora of different things. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. There was a, a fantastic time. It's like, so there was an opportunity as well that we felt with uh, clearly with uh, digital that all those, there's challenges that friends to fairly young audience, but do with each other. Um, as well could be recorded um, uh, because you make those those dares, but you never record them or you never get actually held accountable to it. So we wanted to build a platform where you could get that uh, completely mm -hmm. generated content. Uh, and it was at the time when, if you remember, MySpace was still bigger than, than Facebook at the time. Even Bebo in the UK was still a hot thing. Yeah, but We could sense that uh, there was a real appetite for creating content about that, for um, exchange of ideas, of... Uh, teasing each other to some extent, and which quickly get, got into the field of, indeed, of breaking records and with the digital version of that. And at the same time, the Guinness World Record had been the absolute, uh, I would say, and still is, a credential in that in the space. But when you see it, what is happening on Brexter, what was happening on, on, on YouTube quickly as well, on the back of that, you could see a digital version coming out of that. So that's what 
the Guinness World Record found on us. So after um, three, four years, fascinating of growing pretty rapidly across the US and the UK in particular, um, they decided to acquire us. And to this day, we became the digital, um, the digital entity basically associated to that. So great nice. time. And I would say in terms of learning there, there was a lot in terms of building team from fairly early on in terms of uh, pivoting, which often feels like a sexy word and, and exciting, but once you're in the midst of it, <laughs> Uh, means that you probably got it wrong and you have to adjust your model. Our audience ended up being much younger than we thought, much more content-driven than we thought. We had originally planned for all the scenarios, all the use case, all the type of challenges there as records. <laughs> you can imagine we realized that only a few were really sticky with our, our customers as such. So we had to adjust pretty quickly on that, uh, team included. So great, great, great adventure. And one, one thing that I didn't think that I was going to bring up and speak about was the fact that you, that you also went into the into the music business? But the reason I'm going to bring this up is you're the third person in it must be only about five episodes that I've recorded recently that have been really you know, really high up in the music business, and you seem to have all learned the same thing, which is about innovation and actually digital transformation, because it seems to be over the past couple of decades the time where the music business has had to digitize. And I think everybody that's been, well, these three people, including yourself, that have been on, that have been in this music business, they've seen this transformation. Everybody seems to share this, I guess, the, the, the constant feeling that anything can be disrupted because we've seen it in the music business. And I think anybody that must have been involved in that has seen such a transformation. They've seen the power of digital completely overhaul an entire industry. People have lost their jobs, businesses have lost, other businesses have won. I think it's a it's been a real lesson for so many people. And as I say, you're the, you're the third person. I think the other two have been, one was in the post room of Virgin Records initially. The other one was CEO of Love Film and um, did some other things. So yeah, it's it, it seems to be an interesting business music business to learn about true disruption and innovation. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Uh, and we always talk about the example of Uber transforming uh, or reshaping the, the car industry or about Airbnb. But actually, be, way before that, the music industry was probably one of the first in line to be totally threatened. So true. Uh, 2010 was a time when uh, it was not a happy time in, in many ways in music uh, from a business point of view. And as I said earlier, like moving from 20% digital, sort of being averse to it, but seeing it as a necessary evil, uh, to something that became 50% in yeah. three, four years is wow. dramatic. Not so much from that a, is quick. a PL point of view, from the type of teams that you have, from how you use analytics around that, for the type of bets you have to make on transformation. Um, I mean, as you know, we were three or four key labels at the time, EMI Universal, uh, Sony and Warner. Uh, do we, yes or no, back a Spotify type and the streaming platforms? There were a few others at the time. Uh, what's our view on on Apple as well and, and iTunes, uh, in a world where we sort of had been very comfortable on the traditional disc and the album. The album can completely, everybody knows the story now, but when you live in the middle of it and your DNA is the album and then it becomes a track much quicker, uh, it's not just you, your customers are also the artists. We're managing uh, 600 artists at the time, each with different considerations, different aspirations, some being maybe motivated by mm. uh, maybe more financially, some much more by uh, personal aspirations, so much more by the legacy, uh, so much more by the passion for the audience in different shape or forms. How do you convince everybody to say like those streams at 0.001 cent a stream actually can really <laughs> add up and get your music much more out there or you have to compose differently, your asset creation has to be different. How do you engage the audience much, much early on? And 
what struck me at the time was also an industry that was very much art driven it's it's an art in many ways interesting uh, but at the same time became incredibly data driven you could put a track out there or when, even on an album you could quickly put it out there to the community and just because of the natural fandom the natural attraction to it you got data in real time if you were to listen to it that quickly got you a sense of what worked what didn't work what was uh, captivating the audience and actually some of the best artists i remember like Katy perry for example it's incredibly digital driven managed to really take the wave fairly early on and, and transform uh, even her own profile and her own fandom and, and, and uh, even the trajectory of some of the big players on the back of that. Um, with great launches as well. We, we got to launch the Beatles on iTunes. Uh, oh, wow. So that was the first time because the Apple Corp and Apple Inc., if you remember, had been uh, clearly at odds for a long time. And we felt that this was the time to really create uh, a coup in there and to showcase uh, what, what actually the, the Beatles could really do digitally. Again, it seems obvious now. But the orchestration of those type of campaigns, uh, uh, still with Steve Jobs and a very, very small core team at the time, uh, gave me a great insight as well of what amazing global launches in, in very short time and mm -hmm. impactful can be as well. So I, I found it, I have fond memories of this, aside from the fact, of course, that you ended up going to a concerts two or three times a week as well and getting many artists to get, to get, to get more closely. <laughs> there was the perks of it. But I think from a business point of view, there was something really, really special in terms of transformation that I think in some way you can draw many similarities in other industries that are, have been impacted a bit afterwards or are in the phase of being impacted now. I was about to say, you know, even, even when you were talking then about having to appease the artists who have got very different goals, very different beliefs of how things should be. Lots of different stakeholders that want lots of different things. I mean, that my mind immediately just went to what great training that is for healthcare, you know, all the different people involved in the healthcare, health tech ecosystem, and just how many different things people want. I mean, again, it's good training for that. And, and after, after you did, I mean, you then, you then went to Argos, didn't you? you reshaped that business for four years, turned that digital, sold it to Sainsbury's. You, you then mentioned a fantastic phrase that you, you couldn't resist the, well, it was an irresistible challenge to then move into healthcare. So tell me, tell me about how you see that as the ultimate challenge and, and what actually attracted you to, to, to that as a challenge. Well, in, in many ways, at, at first, there is a, when you walk on, on campus here in Basel or, or you walk around any of, of our entities across the world, you'd sense a sense of purpose and pride that is absolutely gigantic. This mm -hmm. is a, a space where people come for a specific reason. You, you come here to, uh, to save life and to contribute at least to, to, to something that's bigger than, than any of us. And, and it's palpable, it's, it's real, it's tangible. Uh, beyond that, the type of impact that you can have is also significant. In many countries, healthcare is about 10 to 15% of the GDP, uh, with still a lot of inefficiency, often up to 30% inefficiency in the system overall. So, um, just, to, so just to jump in there, I mean, on a personal level, did you genuinely feel that calling? Did you genuinely get to the point where you were thinking, I have learned so much here, I need to apply this to healthcare, or did they come to find you? I think it's a, it's a mix of the two. Um, I got lucky to get a call about the space, so I was certainly intrigued. Uh, so I cannot say that it was just a natural calling. Sure. And, uh, uh, I was, everything was leading for the last 40 years to that. Uh, I cannot claim that, but I quickly got the sense of, of purpose. And you get into a stage as well in, in those digital transformation about what could be the ones as well, what could be the sectors that if you think about the next decade, even potentially even more, could have a real tremendous impact. Yeah. And again, that's where purpose comes back in because you need that type of drive to have that. And two, 
it's not just purpose, it's also skill. The skill and the ability to have yeah. an impact that will be lasting in many ways. And three, to me, it's also not being naive. It also needs to be the right timing. And, and to me, that's what I love about the space. The more I dig into it, the more I realize, gosh, as you said earlier, yes, there's a lot to be done on patient experiences. Yes, there's a lot to be done in the healthcare system overall. There's a lot to be done on research and development. It still takes us 12 years and two and a half billion dollars to get a drug on the market. That's way too long. There's still 40% of patients uh, who are supposed to be on a certain drug regimen, but don't take it, don't adhere to it. There are many patients in chronic disease who get a script, but never get to it because of the complexity on the system. So, and at a time when technology, data, and science is really starting to converge and come together. Uh, at a time when you see the, the Google, the Microsoft, the Amazon uh, getting in that space, but not necessarily having all the sides of the equation to be able to crack it. So how do we make the best of all those sectors to really come together and go after those, uh, some of the most important and biggest challenges that there are? That, that's a piece that was really irresistible to me. Mm. And was that what they asked you to come and do? I mean, how, how did they... When you got that call, what was, what was their ask of you? So to me, I always saw Novartis as being very forward-looking uh, in, in many ways. So it starts, of course, from, from a clear desire from the top, from a, a chairman. Uh, there was a new uh, extraordinary CEO as well coming in place with Vaznara Siman, a new team being created. Uh, we're a fairly young team to some extent uh, among the executive team. It's many of us in, in, our, in our 40s as part of that. Uh, but there was a real drive to go and make what we call going big on data and digital one of our top priorities. And if, effectively, it's one of our top five priorities across the organization. Uh, everybody is deeply aware of that. So there was really, a, I would say, a political will to go and make that happen, which yeah. I think is the starting point of any it's of quite enabling that if you're coming in as chief digital officer, knowing that it's one of the big, th you know, if, if it's literally there in black and white, we want to go big on data and digital and you're brought in as chief digital officer, that political will coming from the people immediately above you, it must have been pretty enabling for you just thinking, actually, I can go to this organization and genuinely do a good job because it's literally written there for me to have that freedom. It sets a tone. Now, at the same time, what I found very attractive, and I think many of the talent who are joining us, where I would take the analogy of Amazon, where it's still day one for us in, in the dimension, but I found very attractive what was that it's a white space. It's a white canvas in many ways. So with a, a fairly large brief about how do we think about reshaping that 12 years and two and a half billion. So the, the R&D side of, of, of our business, how do we think about the commercial side of it? How do we get to reach the right doctors at the right time with the right content much more systematically. How do we, we think about our launches as well? We have 12 mega launches coming up over the next two, three years across Novartis. It's a unique moment in time. Uh, none have had as many new molecular entity approved uh, over the last uh, few years. And at the same time, a lot to be done on the operational side to really streamline our operations, uh, to simplify a lot as well for our 100,000 uh, associates across the organization. And beyond all this as well, a, a significant cultural transformation. I'll happily talk a bit more about it, but that we call the UNBUS movement and an appetite to rethink the models, to, to generally rethink about what does a model look like in the next few years and to test the water on that while we're doing some very concrete applications right now. So I think it attracts a certain type of, of talent, a certain type of personalities and certain type of partners as well around the table. Uh, so yes, it's good to have the political will, but at the same time, we need entrepreneurs who effectively uh, cherish those moments in time yeah 
it's a broad brief, isn't it? Or, or wasn't it? It was a very, a very broad brief. You know, brief, you know, you know, true enterprise transformation. You know that, that the transformation of the of, of the whole organisation as chief digital officer. You know, as you quite rightly pointed out, you know, there's so many different elements of the business which can be transformed with digital. And throughout your career, you can see just how you've acquired the skills to actually touch all those different parts of the business and digitise them, and all those different things. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned R and D. I think you, you mentioned you mentioned a few different other things. I mean, can you just, I guess, for our listeners and and even myself, I guess, put some put some color around that in terms of some actual projects that you've got going on that that tells us what your role is at Novartis and what you guys are doing in that in enterprise transformation. Sure, very very happily, James. I think at the top level we call it reimagining medicine, powered by data science and digital technology. Mm. Uh, advanced therapeutics and, and data science. Uh, so we're really putting, uh, going big on data and digital at the core of that. Uh, we've uh, offered three big what if, I call them what if or imagine if, uh, to the entire organization. And the first one is what if we could cut the time to get our drugs to, to, to find drugs and to get drugs to market by two plus years, which is very ambitious. We yeah. change uh, a lot in, for patients and getting that much earlier to them. What if we could get to twice as many patients twice as fast. So real ambition there for those patients that are not necessarily adhering to the drug regimen. How can we help them more understand, making sure it's as personalized as well to them. At the same time, there are many patients where it's still taking ankylosing spondylitis. It still take eight years for patients to be on the right drug regimen nowadays because cool. they get lost in the system between uh, a GP to the specialist to another specialist or because we don't do our job uh, fully properly. How can we really improve that and get twice faster to twice as many patients? And thirdly, a big what if of how could we streamline our operations and simplify things, uh, hopefully as well, taking one to two billion uh, out of the system as well to be with a clear intent to reinvest that into uh, R&D and our commercial launches as part of it. So from those three big what if that set the tone and give you a sense of the type of impact uh, we wanna have, we have set four key priorities and the first one is what we call our 12 lighthouses. So it's 12 mega, I would say, programs that we've agreed as an executive to hold hands on. They're not my lighthouses, they're really as, a, as an executive. And that span across R&D commercial operations. And most of those are foundational work that will take two, three years to really get in place, but that allows us then to go and dream and to really make, uh, fix some of our foundations, but also to make some of the things we have in mind happen. So many of those are about scale uh, there. So how do we really scale those? And I would flag one of the uh, limitations right now of what has happened in the healthcare is many do a lot of pilots all over the place in plenty of countries because it's exciting, because there's so much to be done, you see it, but it never, it doesn't scale very well. So we really took the brief of how do we really scale them? Again, back to the uh, learnings from Amazon in terms of building platforms. Number two mm -hmm. after the lighthouse is how do we make Novartis digital at every touch point? So this is partly culture. Uh, this is demystifying what uh, digital transformation is all about. It's demystifying what data science and AI could be and do, especially in a business that is incredibly data-driven. But it's also building talents. Like we've had the uh, number one employee of uh, IBM Watson Health. We've had people from Google, from Walmart, from other industries as well to really bring some fresh blood mixed with some of the unique talents that we have as well uh, around here. We are cleaning up our data. Uh, we're sitting, for example, on 2 million patient years of clinical trial data. That's incredibly rich. Many tech players would love to get 
uh, access to that. But how can we better understand disease evolution, so understand uh, patient stratification on the back of that? Number three is, is very close to my heart. Uh, and probably linking back to, to, to my past, is how do we make ourselves, Novartis, a credible number one partner in the tech ecosystem? And what I mean by that is like, we don't have the answer for everything. And there are plenty of things where some others are much better than us. So how can we partner with them as an extension of our team? Not as vendors, but truly as, as partners. That's what we've done. Uh, we've announced collaborations last year with Microsoft AI, with uh, Amazon Web Services helping us on the on the operational side. Uh, I can go back in, on that if you want, specifically on that, but very exciting. And we've done probably around 12 plus partnership just last year alone to help us as well on our launches, help us where we have weak points in terms of patient experiences or into some areas where we have uh, complementary that needs to be brought in terms of data sets. So that number, the number one in the ecosystem is really important uh, to me. And number four, is how do we make some bold moves as well and, and get ready for broader disruption? An example of that would be a collaboration we've announced with uh, Tencent, which is the owner of WeChat yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in China. 60% of the online traffic goes via WeChat uh, in, in China. We see, I see China as a, almost as a digital market in many ways. So the, uh, the, the Chinese government has really uh, made incredible strides to promote actually massive investment into healthcare more recently. They almost skipped a generation from a digital point of view in terms of how they build telehealth and telemedicine as well to, for patients to get access in rural areas, in the way uh, they're bringing AI as well to really help patients who have suffered from heart failures to bring them back to the hospital as soon as we can afterwards. So we've struck a, a collaboration with them that is really moving fast, proper joint team, two pizza teams really working closely together uh, in the context of heart failure and uh, aiming to launch something that we call AI nurse in uh, Q2 next year as part of it. Nice. So you have it basically, it's uh, those four things, scaling those 12 lighthouses, um, how do we make Novartis digital everywhere? How do we become a number one, a credible partner in the tech ecosystem? And finally, uh, some bold moves as well on which we want to be more disruptive. So that's, it's simple at the end of the day, but a broad agenda that we're taking on in a very focused way. Awesome, I'm like dying to come in here because there's so, so much I want to talk to you about. Um, Number three, how to make Novartis a credible partner in the tech ecosystem. That is something that I am extremely passionate about and extremely interested in because I want to know how that point links to those other three things that you mentioned in terms of your what ifs, you know, cutting the time of drugs to market twice the patients, twice as fast and streamlining operations. Then in the context of, you know, you being open to partnerships, wanting to get into the tech ecosystem also in the, in the context of number four on that list, which was, you know, making bold moves and, and broader disruption and things. It seems to me that, with you guys having those as priorities and, and strategic points, the fact that you're, you're then very collaborative by the sounds of things, you're very outward facing at the moment, you're willing to do partnerships, you've done plenty of partnerships. Where do startups fit into that for you? Because there's plenty of startups listening, I can imagine, that are thinking, oh my God, we can do number one, we can do number two, we can do number three, we're, we're bold and disruptive, we can partner with Novartis. I mean, how do you guys make yourselves available for startups to work with? What do you look for? And, and talk to me a little bit how startups fit into your kind of strategy. Yeah, no, ha happily, I think it's, uh, as I said, to be close to my heart for for all the reasons you highlight. And I should first acknowledge, it may surprise you, but 
that we are hard to work with. We realize that. A big pharma company, hard to work with? No, never. <laughs> it's highly, uh, there's a lot of metrics in there as well. It's the, the system itself is really complex as well, coming from outside. Yeah, I get to discover is. that every day as well. So it's easy to also underestimate the, the complexity across all of it as well. Um, but that's why we decided to, to take that on. We felt that there was an opportunity to really streamline that and to do something different. Well, this is it. Yeah. Making it a priority makes you then stand head and shoulders above, you know, the rest in inverted commas, because as you, as you quite rightly point out, it is not easy to work with any big corporate. It's, it's not easy mostly to find the front door, because if, if you are a startup, you know, where, where do you even start attacking the beast? You know, it, it's that's so difficult. I imagine you guys have probably started there. We, we started there, and I would, I would definitely, to the, the startups who are listening or to the potential uh, partners who are listening as well, that's, that's why we took that on, and, and I think there is, there is hope um, in the sense of we, we set up something very specific uh, end of 2018, first launching what we call the biome. And the biome, I would view it as a, if I'm in the shoes of a startup, as a bridge to really make it easier for them to, to work with us. So we, we took that approach of what will it take if I'm in the shoes of a startup, to work more easily with us. You highlighted indeed finding the entry points so that you end up being bounced from one department or one unit to the other and having the illusion that you are really working with us, but actually that you're being lost in the system. So how do we really streamline the entry point? Some startup told us that they wanted to get more access to data, to very bespoke data, to prove the case on the MVPs uh, so that we can send them back as well and say, look, come back, but here you have real uh, clinical trial data or proper data sets that can be used for that. Uh, so sort of sandboxes for, for that specific purpose. Oh, interesting. Some wanted to get access to uh, closer to trials or setup where they can really go and experiment with us and real case studies uh, on the back of it. Obviously, we have space, we have advice and all that as well, but it's much more than that. It's not, I wasn't interested into an incubator to me, not at all, because many do that. Many are better than us at doing this. Uh, we don't necessarily at that, at that vocation. We work with many incubators. We really wanted to think about which ones have a vocation to scale and then how do we make it easier for them? Yeah. I should say, James, as well, and to be totally honest as well, is this is hard because it also means we're going to say no and we say no much more often than we did before. It's often, but, but at least the ones to which we commit, uh, there, there is a stronger lineup behind it now via the biome and via across the organization being able to, to go in and get them in. And often it's even more than that. It's also, we try to think differently. We've launched a few other biomes now in France. We're about to launch one in, uh, in Spain very shortly. We're thinking about some uh, in Asia, as you can imagine. Uh, but those, are, again, they're not about the space. They're about one thing that we can do for startup that is unique. Is if you're a startup in France or in Spain, uh, and you're launching a product nationally, how can we help you think from the get-go about how your platform could be used internationally from the get-go of that? Because we have that. We have those platforms. We have uh, patients set up operations across the different geographies. And even I would go further, we are only interested in the one that have a vocation to scale internationally because we, as much as we may seem big from the outside, we just don't have the bandwidth and, 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 and the, the setup to be able to take a plethora of thousands of startups as such, we really want to be much more focused once we take to go and help them scale. Yeah, and, and quite rightly so, because I think you're, you know, you're not charity. You're, you're not there to be helping the weaker startups get better. That's not your role. And often, again, as you quite rightly highlighted, you know, a, a lot of 
you know, pharma companies, corporates, a lot run accelerators. By definition, accelerators always attract a variety of different startups at a variety of different stages, at a variety of different ability levels. And as you say, international scalability being one of those parameters. And at the end of the day, you guys have got objectives, that sort of thing. You've got you've got a set list of things that you need from those companies. You've got objectives that they need to meet. And so it should not be a democratic process, really. You should be finding the people that are going to serve your business best and then helping them. But I think it's good to know that you're transparent about what it is that you do want from those people i'm sure when they start engaging with you we'll tell them very quickly whether it's something that you want or whether you don't and i think that candor is actually extremely important for people that are trying to engage because you guys all know as soon as you open the door to startups getting in touch with you for various different things particularly if that's an open call you're just going to get flooded you're going to get absolutely flooded with just an unbelievable amount of requests for partnership and all these different things. And I'm sure you get your emails blocked by quite, quite a lot of people asking for things. But I really like that, that you mentioned that once you actually do find the ones that, that you think have potential, you then devote your attention to it. You're not going to be distracted by trying to run a program that seems pointless or trying to you know, spread yourself too thinly. It's good to know that you're open to startups and it's good to know that you will devote your time once you find the ones that you think you might be able to work with. I think that's a really good principle for working with them in your position. I think it's a, it's a very good point, James, and it's good to hear it coming from you because you're very close to the ecosystem as well. And, and I think we, we've taken quite a lot of advice as well. We've partnered with Startup Health, for example. We, I'm with them oh, yeah. uh, early next year at JP Morgan in, in San Francisco next week. Uh, and we've had many really helping us again. I think nothing beats back to the customer centricity going in the shoes of a startup. What does it really take? But it goes even beyond what you're highlighting. It's also, how do we go back to those North Star of those three what if that I was talking about earlier? If those are pretty bold, ambitious moves. So as soon as you take that filter, uh, it, you really need to equip yourself with partners who can help you get to that type of scale where you're really focused on, on the one that can have that type of impact. And also, frankly, it helps us getting the best chance of success for ourselves, but also for the startups, because Agreed. the ones who are subscale, then again, you'll get the illusion to really do some work and be a platform to help leverage. But if we are spreading ourselves to thin, we just don't give it a chance, neither internally, neither to the startups themselves or to the partners. Uh, and we are doing what I'm describing here. We are playing that internally as well. Right now, uh, when I started, we realized we had more than 600 programs, projects, across the enterprise, even on the commercial side in the different countries in different units. It's, and part of it, we've been guilty of it by saying, let's go big on data and digital. So everybody took us literally and everybody became uh, a digital lead to some extent. And of course, you want to try to help and contribute and you see ideas and you go for it. And I love that entrepreneurial spirit. But as indicated earlier, having all those pilots all over the place, never scaling and, and pharma overall is actually, unfortunately, too good at that means that you never really have the impact you can have. So being much more surgical, uh, we're trying to equip ourselves and to reshape ourselves internally as well to remove a lot of those duplication. We have a concept that we call of uh, sharing with pride and stealing with pride, even internally within Novartis. So when we get our teams together, it's like if I'm launching something in Spain, how can I think about it, whether it's with a partner or not, but with the other top countries or other countries in mind from the get-go. And so you are sort of the pilot to get that going. But if it works from the get-go, we think about how can it be a platform play for others 
uh, in this system or experiences for patients that could be replicated other places. And we're pretty, we're becoming more and more ruthless about uh, really prioritizing those in the sense of which ones we give visibility to, which ones we give uh, resource allocations to. And uh, many of our leaders are really helping us drive that removal of duplications as such. But I think it will play for, again, maybe less titles, but more of the one that can really help, of which we can really help succeed much more when, when we take them on board. And it's not easy. Yeah? We'll make mistakes on the way. We'll make the wrong calls on the way. Uh, we have to adjust. We're making attempts where we just don't know the answers. But at, at the very least, I think it, it increases the chance of success for everybody in the, in, in the play. Completely agree. Great framework. Really like it. Really like the fact that startups can just clearly find out that you've got those three priorities, cutting time for drugs to get to market, twice the amount of patients, twice as quickly. And um, what's the, th the third one? Streamlining operations. I mean, you know, it's, it's very clear that <laughs> the, uh, the problems that you want solving through, through them, I, th I think, you know, great framework. And, and just, yeah, I, I think you guys are, are doing good work around that. I mean, is the... Is the biome the, the best way for startups to get into, is that the front door for you guys in its entirety? Is that the best way for people to try and to try and get in to speak to you? That's the way we have set it up. So cool. clearly there will be other discussions going on, but internally we're making sure that it goes back to the biome, at least to help coordinate, at least to sure. have a portfolio management and a view. Uh, that makes sense. There's another side as well, a filter to be applied that is, may sound simple, but are we really taking on, and that's why I go back to those three big what ifs, but as a startup, and maybe if I were in the shoes of a startup as well, there's so much to be done in that space, but are, are you really taking on some of the big challenges that we have? So in oh, our, we just have I in talk our about shoes. this all the time. Yeah, no, go uh, on. When, <laughs> when we have 40% non-adherence to drugs for patients who are really struggling and suffering, that's really of interest, but who can help us uh, do that more systematically? When we have, we're struggling to get uh, patients diagnosed with the right disease, when you see what the... Uh, what some of the companies out there are doing, including the UK, take uh, the Babylons of this world, having more than 5 million basically patients now uh, signing up for it. Those are patients who are expressing with their clicks of saying something is wrong with me, help me understand on that. Those yeah. could be great collaborations as well as, as part of it with similar players in, in Germany that we find very compelling. Uh, we also look at a field of scale. Do they have enough scale that from the get-go we can really help them, we can help each other as part of it. But thinking about those challenges. And they also, on all sides, it goes back to R&D as well, is are there some data sets that would really enrich the ability for us to indeed uh, understand the disease evolution much better so we can cut that time by two plus years. One of the main pain points of those 12 years I was referring to is patient recruitment. In trials, uh, I got to appreciate getting new in the industry of how hard it is to recruit patients with the right inclusion, exclusion criteria that fit the trials as part of it. Uh, but we've done it historically in a fairly traditional way where we are recruiting center by center with each investigator and doing a great job at that. But is there a way to many of those patients start their journey on Google, for example? Mm. Is there a way they're expressing their fears, they're expressing maybe fears of loved one as well, looking for center? And we know, you may know their GOIP on the back of it. So how can we set up our centers differently? Who could help us think about patient recruitment differently? Who could help us think about how we run our trials uh, with all those sensors, all, all, all the technology coming into play and the novel endpoints, who can help us think differently about all that? So it's also putting yourself in our shoes as well about what are the main challenges we're trying to take off? What are big what if, but beyond that, what are the challenges? So that it plugs naturally into it. Yeah. Whereas startup, I would also study our pipeline and look at, and many don't do it enough probably, uh, some do it incredibly well, looking at the main launches that we have coming up, the most important that we have, because you'll quickly get to the key pain points associated to those. 
And then you can see it fits. Then I can ensure you that you will find the full energy with Novartis to find partnership. Interesting. That's such good practical advice. Look at the launches that are coming up because that's where the attention is from Novartis. That's a, that's a really good, really good practical bit of advice. But one question I've, I've got before we start wrapping up is how do you partner and, and slash engage with those companies? Do you, uh, do you license? Do you invest? Do you acquire? What's your kind of go-to on how you get things done with, with startup companies? A mix, and depending on it's horses for courses. Of course, we're we're clearly doing we've done investments, uh, we've done some close collaboration on the launches, we've done embedding them very closely. Uh, I, I can take, but, but one thing is sure, it's like it's not vendors' relationship; it's true partners. Uh, right. I can take some bigger example if it helps. Um, take last year again. Take Microsoft. Take Amazon Web Services. If take Tencent for example, um, those are true collaboration. That's a piece and product. We'll see if we can manage to make it completely succeed as much as we want, but we'll very much give it our best shot. With Microsoft, what I'm excited about, uh, so we've done a collaboration there uh, to do what we called uh, the AI exploration and AI innovation. So where we picked internally on behalf of Microsoft and ourselves, as a starting point, three key areas where we wanted to, to think about what kind of challenges do we have. One of them is we have a launch of a drug called BioView, which is for wet macular degeneration. Yeah. And so it's an injection in the eye and with the advantage that it only needs to be administered on average every three months. But we're getting, starting to get a lot of data where, because every uh, biology is really humbling and every patient behaves differently. So how can we understand patient segments differently? How can we understand based on the wealth of data that we have, who needs an injection at what time? What would be the right dosing for each of those patients? So we wanted to see if we could crack that code together. We're doing a piece on generative chemistry. So how can we really uh, build up or construct, if I can call it that way, the right molecules that have the right properties, uh, the right binding much earlier, at least to understand that better, so that our lab scientists don't have to do it linearly, experimenting one after the other, but we can put much more science, much more technology in their hands to really speed the process on that. Uh, we're looking at uh, CAR T cells, uh, and uh, it's an incredibly complex manufacturing process as such. How can we use the data to better understand how we can improve uh, the optimization of, of that process so that we can serve patients much, much faster? And those are really grounded now on joint teams that we have in Cambridge in the, uh, in the US, uh, near Boston, in, uh, in the UK in part, in part in Basel as well with some other teams, and really joining them up as two pizza teams or as proper agile product teams working together side by side, taking on those challenges, making their own pivot as well when we got it wrong as part of that. And the idea is to bring it in very tangible terms, but I love those type of collaboration. We can really be shoulder to shoulder on that. The same would apply to academia and the same would apply to, to the startups that we, we have a vocation to help go and scale together on. Awesome. Bertrand, I absolutely love what you guys are doing. I, I love the framework that you guys work in. I love that it's so transparent. I love that you've got an open door to startups to engage with you and actually a route which makes sense for them and, and clear guidance for them so that they know exactly what problems they need to be solving. It wasn't what I'd expect from a pharma company, to be perfectly honest. It wasn't, it, you know, the, the fact that you've got a chief digital, digital officer role, the fact that you're 
trying to digitize so much in the organization rather than just the the more obvious things i suppose but it's yeah been incredible for me to learn about what you guys are doing and and i love it and yeah would love to would love to stay in touch and see what we could do in the future um thanks for covering it as well and (laughs) putting no worries no worries um bertrand the way that we end these podcasts is i'm going to hand back over to you to just summarize a little bit about yourself a little bit what about what you're up to at novartis and to close us out with any asks that you might have of our audience. So by all means, sir, take it away and close us out. Yeah, thanks, James. I, I think to us, we covered it, you covered it quite nicely. It's, I think there is really something unique that is going to happen in that field over the next decade. And if you think in that time frame, in a place with a gigantic purpose, in a space with incredible skill and where there's so much to be done as well with patients at the end of all of this uh, and life at the end of all of this, I think there is something for the right talent, the right entrepreneurs, people who are not afraid of um, jumping in as well and learning new skills, who are incredibly curious, who can be inspired, uh, who are okay with an environment that we're trying to unbus in, in many ways. And, and personally, I'm looking for uh, uh, startups, partners, academia, who can be an extension of our team on that. And what I, I often call actually bilinguals. So people who naturally <laughs> can speak two languages, who can speak tech and science, who can speak digital and marketing and, and, and figure out some of our most important launches. We can think about data science and at the same time a lab scientist and, and being passionate about coming together as part of it. I think those bilinguals are going to be the one that can have the most impact. And I would hope that we have a very fertile ground to, uh, to, to welcome them, to host them and to, uh, uh, to crack some of those most complex challenges that, uh, that exist out there together. There is something I've learned as well. I mean, many things I've learned over the last two years, but uh, coming in that space, but there is also something very humbling about biology. And I'm, I'm almost doing an hour and a, a day basically on biology as well to try to catch up because the R&D side is almost one of the most exciting side, but very humbling. I came with a mindset to some extent of all oh, this is just a computational challenge. Uh, well, uh, those are challenges that will crack purely applying actually technology to it, as you have seen some of the IBMs and big tech really going after to it. And actually I realized, and that's the humbling part, that actually it's really science and technology coming together. At the end of the day, a uh, human uh, person has 40 trillion cells. Uh, there are uh, 1,800 dr- druggable proteins of which we really only have drugs for 600 of those. There are 1,500 new molecular, new molecular entities that have been approved all times only by the FDA. Um, and I get to appreciate how much finding a drug for each of those is almost a miracle in every single, in most cases. So I deeply believe, and I don't want to lose a belief that it's a computational challenge will really help enhance that. But there's also a lot of modesty about how much you need to deeply understand the science as well to, to get to that. So that's where those bilinguals I'm referring to are so important to me. How do you get those two pizza teams together with the multi-skills that can get there? And I think that attracts for certain entrepreneurs, that's absolutely fascinating because there's some of the biggest challenges that are out there. Uh, but looking at it through the lens of, of different skills, different capabilities coming together, that's, I think, what will make one of the richness of this space and hopefully that uh, some of the challenges that we'll crack. Bertrand, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for our listeners, I'm going to put the links to the biome, Novartis, um, and however Bertrand decides he wants to be contacted. I'll put all those details in the description of this episode. So Bertrand, thanks so much, dude. I, I will, uh, we'll speak again soon, I'm sure. Thanks, James. Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. 
If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content. Thank you.